Let us further hear the word of God here this evening. Uh, at the expense of repetition, may we underline what we've just sung together by reading through, first of all, Psalm 73 again. And I hope it won't be a weariness to our spirit to hear those words in prose that we've just sung together in verse. Let the word of God be impressed upon our minds and hearts. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, read the whole psalm, Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt, and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are run out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold I shall offend against the generation of my children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast held me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me by thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For though they that are far from thee shall perish, thou hast destroyed all them that go pouring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. Then we read just a few verses from the New Testament, uh, turning to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're reading in chapter 4. 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, commencing to read verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you for all things of your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen. May God bless his own holy word to us, and may the Holy Spirit be our teacher and our guide. Let us now come together in prayer and seek the Lord once more at the throne of grace. May we all pray. Well, seeking the Lord's help, let's return to his word this evening, recorded for us in Psalm 73. Uh, we're not looking at one particular text, uh, but our thoughts are travelling uh, through the entire extent of the psalm. I don't know whether you notice this as you peruse the, the book of Psalms, but often you'll find uh, the psalmist to start with uh, below zero. Uh, that is to say, he's very loved in spirit and broken and troubled. Uh, I'm so grieved by one thing or another. But nine times out of ten, you'll find that by the time he gets to the end of the psalm, 
He's no longer like that. He's expressed his spirit before God. He's opened his heart before God. And before we know where we are, he's learning to rejoice. And his spirit is lifted and elevated, sometimes in the most remarkable way. And this psalm is no exception to that. Because we find poor Asaph in a terrible state to start with. Or at least he's recording where he was to us. But at some particular point in the psalm, and we're going to notice that tonight, the particular point when things begin to change. And they begin to change in the most remarkable way. So by the time we get to the end of the psalm, we have one of the most beautiful love songs in the entire slaughter. Where do we get there? He's so bitter to start with, isn't he? That is, he is remembering how bitter and hard and resentful he got. How did he come into such a beautiful and sweet state before God? So it's part of our reverent quest here tonight to see how that happened. Because it's wonderful if we can follow the same pathway and have our own spirits lifted out of bitterness into a blessed sweetness. That's why to me this psalm is one of the most beautiful psalms in the entire Psalter. The psalms are the heart of the Word of God, aren't they? Quite literally, you open your Bible at random in the middle and you're almost certainly going to land up in the book of Psalms. In more than one sense, the psalms are the heart of the Bible. They express every considerable, every, every, every conceivable range of emotion in the human heart before God. That's what's so wonderful about them, as they are a complete and unique expression of the soul toward God. And so we turn to Asaph's psalm here tonight, uh, let's briefly outline the skeleton. I don't think we'll stick very strictly to the skeleton, uh, but first of all, we have a tormenting problem, don't we? That's the first thing we encounter, and the whole first uh, uh, 14 verses of the psalm uh, express that tormenting problem that Asaph has. And perhaps we might say, well, how are we going to address that problem? And what are we going to notice what is missing in the first part of the psalm. But first of all then, to address that, the tormenting problem. We've read the words tonight, uh, we don't need to rehearse them. Uh, but he's in a right state. He really is. He's in, he gets into such a state of mind that it's dangerous. Uh, but more of that in the mind. The tormenting problem. Then I want to look at the turning point. Because there's a turning point in the psalm. And if there was, this was an informal Bible study tonight, uh, I, I'd ask around everybody, but where do you think the turning point is? Because there comes a point in the psalm when things begin to change. Only very slightly to start with, but things begin to change in his heart and mind. Uh, the turning point, and what that has to teach us, and then to take a look at the tremendous presence of God in the last part of the psalm. Because Asaph actually goes into his presence, doesn't he? He goes into God's house and everything begins to change. Once he gets into God's presence, the whole picture of everything alters. 
And I want to look at that tremendous presence of the Lord and open up, open it up a bit more fully if we have time in our thoughts tonight. But the amazing thing about the psalm, another thing I want you to feel and notice about the psalm is that, you know, though it starts off very rehearsing, very bitterly and very hard about where he was, there's another presence in this psalm that grows on you. I don't mean Asaph himself, but there's another presence that's growing on you as you go through the psalm. And you realise somebody else is there, somebody wonderful who is completely overwhelming and dominating the sea. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. There's somebody else there, isn't there? It's a bit like, perhaps sometimes you might be listening to a telephone conversation. And it's a bit tantalising because you can hear the person on this end talking, but you're not fully aware of what the other person is saying. Though perhaps you can guess by what the person this side is saying. And you see, God is, the, in a sense, the silent part. He doesn't have to say much, does he? You know, when a soul is coming back to God in humble, broken repentance, God doesn't have to say much, does he? doesn't have to say much. But nevertheless, we know the Lord is there, overwhelmingly, gloriously dominating the scene at the end of the psalm. Well, without more ado, let's look at the tormenting problem. Well, we've seen what his problem is, haven't we? Because Asaph has been looking out on the world, as you and I might do today. We look out on the world, we see the state of things, we see how the wicked are basically having it all their own way, especially in this day in which we live. Uh, the truth is fallen in the streets, and the wicked prevail over the righteous. That's the way it seems. That's the way it appears. We might say, well, that's hard facts, isn't it? That's exactly what's going on out there. The wicked are triumphing. They're getting it all their own way. And they're laughing, they're laughing with contempt at those who even try to think of opposing them. They've got the whip hand, they're in control. That's what he's complaining about. Now, friends, there are two answers I think to that, from the Word of God, to the state that Asaph had got into. And that there are two watchwords that we can pluck from Paul's writings in the New Testament. Uh, I take one of them, first of all. Paul says to the Corinthians, doesn't he, in one place, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now what a watchword that is on every day in the believer's life. Because all the while we're walking by sight, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to get it wrong. That, 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 that's absolutely inevitable. If you leave God out of the picture, uh, even though you might be dealing in hard facts seemingly, if you leave God out of the picture, you're going to get it wrong. You didn't get it hard. You know, as you get older, you get a store of illustrations to, uh, to bring into sermons. Uh, I've been guilty of using this one before, but it was, I was very struck by a sermon I heard very young in my adulthood. Uh, the minister, now long in glory, uh, but he was reminiscing 
Uh, he was preaching in a, Bed in a Bedfordshire chapel long before the Second World War, and he was, uh, he was very young, he was very new to the, uh, to the ministry, and of course he was a bit, a little bit nervous, a little bit afraid of, uh, of somebody, you know, criticising what he had to say, because there were a lot of stern old faces in the congregation, uh, quizzing him uh, very carefully, you know, looking at him, uh, you know, to see how he would preach. When he was preaching this place for the first time, and he, and he quoted a hymn. And the hymn he quoted, of course, was such a well-known hymn by William Cowper. And he said this, in quoting it, he said, Blind unbelief may err, and scout his work in vain. Uh, where had he got it wrong? Well, when he came out of the pulpit, there was a stern old man. I think he wasn't that stern, but it seemed like that to him. A stern old man came up to him and said, Young man, you've said something very wrong in the pulpit this morning. And of course he'd be quiet. He died a thousand years. He wondered what on earth he'd said that was wrong. He said, You quoted that hymn wrong. You said, Blind unbelief made her and scanned his work in vain. It's not that at all. He says, Blind unbelief is sure to her. It's bound to get it wrong. And he said, he was preaching at the time, this, this, this older minister, he said, you know, he said, I've never forgotten it. Not from that day to this. Uh, but what, what, a, what an apposite correction that was, because all the while we're only using our senses to make judgment, we're going to get it wrong. No matter how clever we are, no matter how perceptive we are, no matter how clear-headed we are. And that doesn't often apply to me. But even if we are, if we leave God out of the picture, we're going to get it wrong. And that was what Isaac was doing all that while. All the earlier part of the psalm, he was getting it wrong. And what a sweet psalm of confession it is, because he's telling us all about it. He's not trying to cover up. He's not trying to pretend he wasn't quite, quite so bad. No, he tells it the way it is. He says, that's how I got. And I was almost with God. I almost come to the point of of, 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 of losing my faith. He said, I was nearly there. Not quite. Because God's sheep can, cannot be lost. However far they start. But he said, I was nearly gone. What's the second watchword? The second watchword again is from Paul. And it's a, again another wonderful piece of directive and advice in Romans chapter 12. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. What a watchword that is, isn't it? Be not overcome of evil. You know, you and I, and I'm not pointing at you, I'm pointing more at me, I'm so easily overcome and infected by other people's sins. I don't mean that, God forbid, that I go along with those sins and start committing them myself. But I'm infected by their badness. That's what happened to Asaph. He got into a bad spirit through other people's badness, didn't he? Uh, it, you know, that was how he went wrong. But Paul says, that's something you've got to fight by God's grace. Be not overcome of evil. But you don't stay neutral if that doesn't work. But overcome evil with good. And that's the wonderful resource that the believer has. 
They were all those blessed martyrs that died for Jesus. How they overcame evil with good. I've only been reading about them in passing uh, in, in a book this week. You know, I'm thinking about the, uh, the, the Marian martyrs and how they suffered. And oh, what a torture they had. Because they were overcoming evil. And it was evil. It was diabolical. But they overcame evil with good. And their witness still lives today. You know, nearly 500 years on, you might say it's a very weak and feeble flame, but it hasn't been put out yet. Latimer's candle is still alive. It is. And so we know what it is then if we may overcome evil with good. So those are the two watchwords. I won't say much more to it tonight because I don't want to get, I want to try and get through the psalm if I can because we're not expounding every single word. But we're, we're following the drift and the flavour of the psalm. But you see, that's the comment I think we can make on those first uh, 14 verses of the psalm where Asaph sweetly confesses to us now how wrong he was. He said, I was so foolish. I was, I was like a wild animal that's got no sense or reason. That's the state I was getting into. So then, the tormenting problem. Now, without more ado, let's take a look, if we may, at the turning point. And again, friends, I'll ask you the question. You don't have to reply, but I'll ask you the question. Where do you think the turning point is? Because it's got to be a turning point. Something happens uh, to effect a change in Asaph's heart and mind. And before we look at it, you know, it's amazing to look at those points in Scripture where there's a change of heart and a change of mind. And it's all of God, but the Lord isn't limited to the means that He uses. He brings my wandering spirit back when I forsake His way, says one of the versions of Psalm 23. He knows how to bring us back. Thou knowest the way to bring me back, says Wesley, my broken spirit to restore. He knows, he knows how to bring his wandering sheep back and to gather them again into the fold. He knows how to do it. And he's not limited to means. You know, there's turning points in a lot of stories, aren't there? What about that wonderfully short story that Jesus told about the prodigal son? You know, it's such an economy of words, isn't it? And you watch this lad go completely off the rails, go way away from home, and what a terrible mess he gets into. You might say, can it be worse for a Jewish lad to be sitting in a big sky? You know, and half starved at that. What a mess! What a mess, but you know, the Lord Jesus says this, but when he came to himself, that's the turning point. He was still a long way from home, but there was a change going on in his heart and mind, quietly to start with. Because he sat there in that mess, didn't he? What did he start to think about? What did he start to think about? He started to think about his dear old dad. And what a lovely fellow it was. But even the riffraff, even the casual labourers in the village, 
uh, he showed such kindness to them. And he had them up to the farm and looked after them. He gave them a good day's pay and got his wife to give them a, a square meal in the kitchen. That was the sort of chap he was. That's the sort of chap my dad is. What am I doing here? I'll go back, I'll be like them. I'm not going to be a son. I'm not going to be a son anymore. I've blown that. But at least he'll have me back on those terms. Well, I don't need to tell you the rest of the story, do I? Because you know on what terms he came back. Complete restoration. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm not here to expound that story tonight. But it's got a beautiful, but imperceptible turning point that we wouldn't see unless we were told when he came to himself. Well, friends, that's what's happening to Asaph gradually. You know, I posed this question somewhere uh, a short while ago, and somebody says, oh, well, this turning point is verse 17. And you see, that's the natural thing to turn to, isn't it? Uh, that's the obvious place to turn to. When he, uh, he goes into God's house, and, and everything is so different. And he sees what a form he's been. But no, it, it starts to happen before that. Look at those verses before. You, you might just glance over them and not notice them. Verse 15 and 16. If I say I will speak thus, <coughs> behold, I should offend against the generation of my children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. <coughs> and so what did you make of that? The thought comes to him. Alright? The thought comes to him. If I carry on like this, I'm going to hurt and damage God's people. That's the thought that comes to me. If I go on like this, I'm going to be a disaster in other people's lives. Can you see what's going on? And it's remarkable, isn't it, how the Lord uses that factor to start to bring him back. <clears throat> what does John tell us in his epistle? By this we know we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And this is the evidence that Asaph is a gracious man. Because he loves the Lord's people. And he can't, alter, he can't bring himself to earth. Hence, there's the mark of grace. What a distinguishing mark it is, isn't it? That there he loves God's people. And that's the factor the Lord uses to melt his spirit and to change his mind. So, what a turning point that is, isn't it? You know, some turning points are imperceptible, aren't they? When we were on holiday a few months ago, Oh, remember it now. It was a cold December evening. It was a lovely bright summer's day up on the coast of Northumberland and my wife and I were walking uh, barefoot in the sand uh, on the shore and there was, a, there was a gentle argument going on between us. Not a nasty argument, but a gentle argument as to whether the tide was coming in or going out. And we couldn't resolve it, not until later. And we were sat up on a table above the beach and we said, yes, the tide was coming in. But you couldn't see it until much later. And that's the point that we've got here. That, uh, oh, the tide turns. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, when the tide turns? That's something we long to see in our land today, the tide to turn. 
Like that time, you know, in Samuel's day, then all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. There was a turn, there was a turn of the heart to God. It's, it's mysterious, isn't it? We don't know where it's come from. It's of God, of course. It comes from Him. But it's a wonderful thing when it does happen. A blessed thing. When, when the Lord turned again the captivity, turned again, turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them. Oh, may the Lord enable us to see that. But anyway, there we are. There's, there's the turn of the time, or should we say, the, 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 the turning point. Now we must hasten on because there's only so much time. Now let's take a look, shall we, at, uh, at, uh, at what we may describe here as the tremendous presence. And I'm going to talk about it in terms of the saints' communion. And we're going to focus especially uh, between verses 23 and 26. But before we do that, you know, it's a remarkable thought, isn't it? One of the things that comes to him when he goes into God's house. He sees how the wicked are nothing. At the end of the day, they're nothing. You know, that's what happened with Hezekiah when he took the letter into the house of God. And God's answer to the Assyrians was this, is that the virgin, the daughter of Israel, hath despised thee because who do you think you are? You're nothing. And the very next morning, of course, when they looked over the battlements of the city, all the Assyrian army were dead bodies and finished. That was it. Have you noticed this in Israel's Old Testament history that when they get a victory, it's total? Have you noticed that? Uh, it, it's, not, it's not partially resolved. No, when God gave Israel a victory, it was total. It, you know, it, it was either one thing or the other. Either Israel were completely overwhelmed by their sin, or else they completely overcame their enemies. But anyway, that's another thought. But there's one particular thought that always fascinates me here, and it's this. Verse 20, look at verse 20. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. What a powerful picture that is. Jim get waking dreams. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, through the multitude of business and some bother or other, I, I get waking dreams. And you know, you, you perhaps wake up half past seven or whatever time you normally wake up in the morning, and you're all of a much sweat. Oh, that's horrible. And you know, it, it, and it takes, oh dear me, it takes five or ten minutes to, to get it out of your hair. You know, it's all been silly, it's all been absurd. You, you've been on some impossible errand and you can't fulfill it, and you're in a right old state. Are you relieved initially, of course, that it's not true? But you, you're still tasting it and seeing it for the first few minutes. Come half past ten in the morning. You're having a job to remember what it was all about. Come midday. You've forgotten that you've had a dream at all. It's gone. So what a powerful verse that is, isn't it? The evil that seem that seem to be so real and so substantial. And so overwhelming. But in the end, in God's account, they're nothing. They're nothing. But anyway, we must carry on. Let's look at the saints' communion as expressed in those verses 23 to 26 that form a beautiful chorus, as it were, towards the end of the psalm. 
Read those words again. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast held me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I bent of thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Four things to notice here. Verse 23, we see his confidence, his confidence in verse 23. Then we see his continuance in verse 24. Then we see his communion in verse 25. And finally we come to his conviction in verse 26. And I shall only really uh, name these things, I won't go into great depth, but uh, they're most, most instructive to see the succession of things here. First of all, his confidence, his confidence, verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast held me by my right hand. Friends, this is the language of a child, isn't it? You know, as grandparents that we are now, my wife and I, you know, you watch the various stages of growth in your grandchildren that you were aware of many years ago, but now forgotten, and your own children have now grown up. And, and, and there's a certain stage where uh, the intelligence kicks in uh, to a degree. Uh, when they're just about two or just under two years of age, you forget these things. But they get to a point of, of Hyper sensitivity. Because they're intelligent enough to be fully aware of the obvious things that are going on round about them at that stage. And to reason about it. And the point is this they still can't articulate properly, perhaps fully. But I noticed with our little granddaughter, I mean, she's through that stage now, she did it only last, last a few weeks. But there was a stage at which, you know, Nana and Granddad were there in the room, and, and Mum or Dad were there, but Mum or Dad has to go out for something, only for a minute or two, back to the kitchen to sort something out, say, I'll be back in a minute. And the mere fact that Dad has gone. Nana and Granddad are there all right, you know. Hopefully a reassuring presence, they're there all right. Uh, but... Uh, but immediately, she's aware that mum or dad are out of the room, she starts to be upset. Alright? It's, it's, it's nothing, I mean, it's, it's just a pass of things, isn't it? Because a few weeks later she realises, well, it's okay because mum's in the kitchen and dad's in the garbage and now and grandma are here, so everything's alright, what's the problem? But they haven't got to that stage yet. They're in that childish state of, 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 of sensitivity and dependence. Well, friends, we're not much better than that as believers, are we? Are we? And Asaph says, doesn't he, uh, that uh, nevertheless I'm continually with thee. What I don't realise is that you're there all the time, Lord. You're always there for me. Every moment of every day. And I get so afraid and so worried and so unsettled and so troubled. But you're there all the time. I'm continually with thee. You know, that lovely psalm of God's omniscience and wonderful care, Psalm 139, 
No David was often plagued with enemies in his early days, especially. And it was almost too scary for him to go to sleep and, you know, be off his guard because it, the enemy might be upon him. But there's that lovely touch in Psalm 139 where he says, When I awake, I'm still there. I've lost it. I've fallen asleep. But you were there all the time and what looking after me. So then that's the first thing we come to here. His, his, his confidence, his confidence in the Lord. And then in verse 24 we see his continuance. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. What's the great advantage that the believer has over the unbeliever? An enormous advantage that we have over those who don't love God, sadly. The advantage is this, is that you and I have got a future. You and I have got a blessed future that, 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 uh, that heart and mind has hardly ever begun to enter into. We have the hope of glory. That's tremendous, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's just overwhelming. You know, we read those words of Paul tonight, didn't we, in 2 Corinthians? You know, that hark back to the days of the old scales. Do you remember, well, they were showing age now, but do you remember the old-fashioned scales? That, you know, grocers and some shops like that used to have, you know, before this di dig digital age and electronics were there, you know, the electronic cash register and everything that, you know, measures out things exactly. You know, it was all, it was all mechanical in those days. And you got the old scales. And it's amazing how accurate a reading you can get with the scales as well, with all the different weights and different sizes. Uh, and on one side of the scales was, was an empty bowl, which sometimes would accumulate dust. You know, obviously it would, it would get dusty. And they used to have a little brush that brushed out the flecks of dust so that you would keep the reading accurate when you were trying to weigh something. That though the dust didn't amount to much, it, it, it slightly uh, made the reading of the weight incorrect. And Paul says that's this life. 70, 80, 90 years, or however long or short it is, he says that's all this life amounts to. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment. In, in terms of eternity, it's nothing. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But this life in this world cannot support. I'm looking around for something fragile as an object. Uh, well, I wouldn't want to damage any of this equipment here, but, you know, there's, there's, there's some sort of monitor here, and, friends, if we put the weight of this building on top of that piece, that bit of kit, you know, it'd it flatten it, it'd crush it, because it couldn't sustain the weight of this building upon it. And that's the weight of glory. 
It doth not yet, yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And it's an awesome thought, isn't it? But the wonderful thought is this, is the believer has hope. The world doesn't have hope. Not hope in the way that we have. We have an expectation of beyond this life. As Paul says, in this life only, we have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. We have a blessed hope that is set before us. And that should help to keep us going and lift up our hearts and lift up our spirits in the way. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel afterward, afterward. Yes, Lord, the Lord is with me now, but that's not the end of the story. But afterward receive me to glory. Then this communion, verse 25. I think, friends, that's the high point, and I'm sure it's the high point of the psalm. And one of the commentators, I think it is Derek Kidder, uh, as far as he's concerned, that's, that's the most sublime expression of love in the entire Psalter. Who have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. You notice now that though he's still sharing all this with us, he's now talking to God, isn't he? He's talking directly to the Lord in that verse. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. You know, we shouldn't make our own experiences uh, obviously intrude over the objective word of God. But that verse has meant so much to me since I was 23 years of age. Uh, I was riding home on my bicycle, riding home from work in central London. 1973, long time ago now, isn't it? Uh, but I just lost a girlfriend and I was below zero. I was devastated. You know, when you get to be an old fella, you, you say, well, what's the big deal? You know, but uh, when you're that age, it can, you know, really get to you. And I'll never forget the power of those words. Uh, it was as if the Lord was was saying those words and all the din and noise of the rush hour traffic in East London was silent and still. Whom have I? You know, God was all that mattered. Nothing else mattered. And what peace followed because of that? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. And finally, his conviction in verse 26. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, it is the worst case scenario. But what's the worst that can happen for the believer? Well, this, this poor old body is going to fall apart. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's not meant to last forever, and it's going to, it's going to pack in sooner or later. My flesh and my heart faileth, but, but there's always a but. But God is the strength. That word strength means rock. He's the ultimate unchanging reality in my life. So everything else is going to change and is changing. You can't stop it changing. But this factor remains the same. 
God is the strength, the rock of my heart, and also my portion forever. That portion, where portion means inheritance. And Asaph was a Levite, and the Levites had no inheritance in Israel. All the other tribes could go and own property and you know, develop their businesses and you know, give it to their children and all the rest of it. But the Levites couldn't do that. Because God had said to the tribe of Levi, I am your inheritance. I am what you receive. And when we really start to think about that, it's stupendous, isn't it? Because God is ours. That's a tremendous thought. That the hope of weak and worthless and feeble you feel to be, God is completely yours. Not only do you belong to Him, He belongs to you. He's all yours. You know, we use that expression sometimes, don't we, when, you know, we want to give somebody our full attention to you and say, I'm all yours. And that's what God says to His people, uh, that He is their portion and their inheritance forever and forever. Well, I feel we must leave there now, this part of the meeting, as we turn very shortly to prayer. May the Lord bless these few thoughts to us. And make this lovely sun a bright reality in our hearts and in our life. So may God bless his word to us, each and every one. Amen. Amen.